Hello and welcome to Planning People, the NMA podcast. I'm Ollie Smith and I have to say I'm so excited for this week's episode because this week we're talking all things intergenerational politics with Dr Eliza Philby. Eliza is a top academic, business consultant, author and intergenerational expert and she's here to help us navigate what I think is a new world of intergenerational relations and associated issues. Eliza, thanks so much for coming in. How are you today? Delighted to be here. Great Pleased stuff. To be here. Um, the first thing I thought we'd do is play a little game of who said that. I'm going to read out a few quotes, which you're not allowed to see, and I want you to tell me, well, it's quite hard, whether you think the person that said it is from Generation Z, 1997 to 2010, a millennial, 1981 to 1996, Generation X, 1966 to 1980, a baby boomer, 1942 to 1965, or a member of the silent generation, which is, of course, pre-World War II, very stoic. So I will God, this is hard already. Okay, go. You might be surprised. You're, you might get the first one. At the end of the day, life is about being happy being who you are. And I feel like we are so blessed to have the support system and the best family to really just support each other no matter what we're going through. Which generation would have said that? Mm, see, I think that's Gen Z. Mm, well, there's a, we could dispute this. So it's Kim Kardashian. <gasps> oh, okay. No, she's a millennial. Born 1980. Wow, yeah, she's actually 37 years, years old. Yeah. So she's just on the cusp between oh, X and, okay. and millennial. Okay. Number two, you might get this. In tough times, everyone has to take their share of the pain. Which generation would have said that? Mm. See, I think that's a millennial. Really? <laughs> no? No. <laughs> I'm terrible at this. So that's <laughs> Theresa May. Oh, God. Born 1956, age 62. Mm, classic boomer. Classic okay. boomer. Okay. Number three. This is quite hard. Well, it's quite hard if you're trying to get the person that said it. My parents never pushed me towards music. I feel like growing up in a musical household and always being surrounded by it, I was always kind of a performer child. I remember my parents would have guests over and they would bring their kids and I would uh, make sure that they were ready to put a show on. Okay, that sounds like a young person. Gen Z. Millennial, just. <laughs> it's Dua Lipa. Dua Lipa. Born 1995, <laughs> age 23. You're really destroying my credibility here, even before I've contributed to the programme. It's hard. It's hard. Don't worry. It'll get, it'll get better throughout the podcast. Number four, there's five. Those of us who were 12 or 13 when the war started, hint, were absolutely thrown into the mainstream. We had to grow up instantly and take care of ourselves. Well, depending on war, on which war that was, I'm assuming it's the silent generation. Correct. That's Angela Lansbury, oh. who's born 1925 and is aged 92. Bless her. Bless her socks. And finally, I've never really responded to peer pressure. What I do respond to, however, is someone categorically telling me I can't do something. I trill at the sound of a gauntlet going down. It feels like a dare, and I've never been able to resist a dare. Gen X. I think you're right. Yeah, correct. Yeah. It's Sue Perkins, born 1969, age 49. Very good. Okay. Told I got, you it would get I got better. One, I got two out of five. Okay. <laughs> it will get better. Um, that was a convenient introduction to some generational concepts for listeners, uh, in case you didn't know. I should add that you can't always get your way in this world by categorising people that rigidly, but for the purposes of this podcast, it will come in useful. Um, now, Eliza, you work with businesses. 
don't you? Mm-hmm. Um, tell me, what is it that businesses want to know about intergenerational differences at the moment? Are they worried and scared? So I've worked with a number of businesses across different sectors, from financial services through to fashion, through to the beauty industry, through to the legal firms um, and all sorts of professions. And there are common themes and common concerns. So one of the obvious things is a recognition and acknowledgement that there are now four generations, mostly Mm. four generations, working within the workplace. Mm. And as you quite rightly pointed out, that's baby boomers who are still clinging on to power and Mm. not not yet retiring. Gen X, who are now in kind of top management positions. Millennials, who are now already have gone through the grad schemes and are now themselves managers. And then Gen Z, now immediately in the last sort of two years, coming through are your new recruits. Mm. And so firstly, it's an acknowledgement of that millennials are no longer the young people in the firm. Um, For a long time business, it took them a long time to get their head around millennials. And then by the time they have done that, a new generation have come through with very different sets of priorities. So it's about understanding the intergenerational makeup of the company, but also mm. your client base as well. So I see it as there's an internal set of challenges. So what's your recruitment policy, for example? Mm. How is it appealing to Gen Z's priorities, concerns, values and behaviours? Um, what's your retention um, programme? Not, not just for that kind of immediate post-scheme um, sort of couple of years um, for millennials, but also millennial mothers. Millennials are now having kids and shared parental leave and flexible working for maturing, what I call maturing millennials. How are you keeping mm. that demographic who, you know, by default are conditioned to think about moving around within the workplace, moving yeah. around almost not just across um, businesses and companies, but across professions even, um, and changing professions. And then Gen Xers, as they actually, they're the sandwich generation who are um, having to perhaps care for elderly parents whilst also having to care still for their children mm. and also perhaps still slightly resenting the fact that the baby boom generation haven't yet retired. Mm. They're, they're actually, if it's any generation leading the gig economy, it's the Gen, Gen Xers who a number of them, large mm. proportion of them, um, set up their own businesses, um, perhaps were made redundant in the wake of the crash. They have particular concerns. And then finally, baby boomers. I mean, one of the interesting things is that flexible working is benefiting baby boomers who perhaps are grandparents um, mm. doing the school pickup and the school run um, as much as it is for their millennial kids who are also uh, have parental pressures. So the internal um, issues over um, the different generations and what they prize and what they're looking for, also how they communicate, how they lead, how um, they want to see the business run and mm. the kind of company they want to work for is very much one aspect of my work. And then externally, so thinking about a multi-generational client or consumer base. So let's sort of smash those horrible preconceptions about you know, baby boomers don't do technology or um, Gen Z don't appreciate face-to-face interaction, all of that kind of stuff, and try and tease out what, how do you appeal to a multi-generational client base or a consumer base? And how do you sort of um, not isolate or alienate one generation and one demographic um, in doing so? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of internal policy and mm-hmm. external relations that I've been 
helping businesses navigate around, really. It's very interesting that you talk about Generation X, because, as you say, they're now in position of power. They're, they've got some, some of the top jobs. Um, a lot of the dialogue about intergenerational relations is now taken up with this sort of war almost. It's like a, mm. it's not a cold war. It's, if it's not a cold war, it's a very, very hot piece between uh, boomers and millennials. Mm. And boomers accusing uh, millennials of being lazy and entitled and millennials returning fire by saying, you know, well, you know, you've ruined the house market, you've ruined the planet, mm. you know, you had access to all these brilliant things, and what have you given us, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, to stick something in the middle of those two things, I had a, converse, a conversation at our conference in January um, with uh, someone who I presume is Gen X, mm. so in their sort of mid to late 40s. And you know, he said exactly those things. You know, we didn't get the racing stock markets of the 80s because mm. we were young. We didn't get the brilliant, you know, we got, we got property, but we didn't get the brilliant property prices that the boomers did. And now we have all of these extra burdens as well. We've got kids to pay for university. You know, we've got uh, parents who are ill, who are gonna be living longer through these illnesses. Mm -hmm. um, they're really a squeezed middle, aren't they? And and because they're, because they're sort of, they're the middle class, they're sort of middle Britain types, um, they also face a sort of onslaught from the government, you know, from tax, from this question about, who should pay more? Who should contribute more? Is this something that we should be focusing more on in terms of policy and, and addressing the Gen X lot? Are they being um, behind? I think, so the first thing, I think you're absolutely right. The classic narratives of, is of boomers versus millennials. And one of the reasons why that's happened, of course, is, is, is purely demographic numbers. Mm -hmm. There are a lot more boomers than Xers, and there are a lot more millennials than Xers. Mm -hmm. And there's power in numbers, yes. right? And also, baby boomers invariably, unless they had children quite young, gave birth to millennials. Mm. So it, you're having a fight within families yes. between parents and children. Yeah, sure. Right. So the whole narrative of you've stolen my future is from millennials is responded from baby boomers that say we had it much harder than you did when mm. we were young. We just shut up, put up, and worked our way up. Mm. and you have no idea what it's like. And I get lectures from my mother like that every day. Now, actually, the reality is, is that the generations have never been closer. Mm. Okay. So families have never been closer economically and um, personally. The idea of rebelling against your parents now seems a bit odd. Whereas mm. for my mum's generation, she was born in the 40s, classic boomer, you know, she, she rejected all the sort of values, behaviours and, and, and sort of ways and workings of her mother's generation wholeheartedly. She rebelled in the 1960s. That's yeah. what you know people tended to do. Um, so I think actually the families have never been closer. Mm. Um, and so I, I dispute that whole boomer versus millennial, which is encouraged by polit politicians and um, certain, I think, parts of the press and also policy as well, because there's no doubt that millennials, who now are, as I said, becoming savers, investors, parents, and managers, mm. you're getting basically, I think we're in um, the beginnings of that transference of power. Mm. So baby boomers have basically ruled savings, investments, company culture, politics to a certain extent for a long time because there was such power in numbers. And you're getting, you know, next, in 2019, millennials will outnumber baby boomers, and that will 
you're getting you will get that shift of power from millennial uh, baby boomers to millennials now where does that leave gen x well again in that squeezed <laughs> middle because they are as you say that they're almost they are the um often the dominant um, generation in business and see it from both ends so they are slightly resentful of baby boomers mm. Because as, as, because of the reasons you explained, but also slightly resentful of millennials because all the attention, all the benefits, all of the allowances um, have been for millennials and not them. And also, I would add, they they're old. They're just about young enough to remember what it was like to be young. They really see millennials. Well, I know, think like, I, I think that's part young. of if you like Gen X rather than millennials were the first generation that experienced what I call arrested development. Mm. So if you think about the five markers of adulthood, that's you leave home, you finish your education, you're financially independent of your parents, you get married and you have kids. Now the average age of a woman achieving all five markers of adulthood in 1965 was 26. Mm -hmm. Today, it's 36. Wow. Exactly 10 years later, and the, the, the generation that started that extended adolescence mm. was Gen X, not millennials. Okay. And that's partly because they went to university in bigger numbers. It's partly because as a result, they therefore entered the workforce later than baby boomers. Yeah. You know, so, so actually that extended adolescence isn't a millennial specific thing. Um, it started actually with the baby boomers, but it was really true of Generation X. Mm. And so if you think about it, what a 40-year-old woman would have, would have been doing in the 1960s, she possibly would have been a grandmother. Yeah. Today, the largest rate in, um, in, 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 the largest rate in which women are having children is not women in their 20s, not women in their 30s, but women in their 40s. So women are becoming first-time mm. mothers in their 40s yeah. at a faster rate at any time in history. So actually, we, you will have heard 20 years ago, you know, 40 is the new 30. Now you hear, you know, 50 is the new 40. <laughs> 60 is the new 50. Life begins at 70. Life yeah. begins at 80. It's that actually people are living longer mm. um, and are healthier for longer and therefore will probably be working for longer and ultimately extend their adolescence much later. I cannot tell you the amount of 30th birthday parties I've been to <laughs> that it's like a coming of age. Yeah. Whereas for my parents' generation, it was 21st birthday. Yeah, absolutely. You know, in medieval times, by the way, you were an adult when you were seven. So there was no such thing as adolescence. So, you know, we have extended adolescence and that's had huge impact on how people save how people spend, mm. and how people think about work and the long term. Mm. Um, and I can talk a, a bit more about that, but I think Gen X in particular are unfortunately in that position where they can see millennials actually have, have had a bit more freedom in how they've lived their youth. Yeah. And I think they look at boomers and go, hang on a minute, you're gonna have a 20 year retirement. Mm. I'm going to have to work until I'm 70, possibly 75, just to sustain my living standard. Mm. And so therefore I can't even use my retirement to relive my youth like baby boomers are. Yeah. So it's a slight, they're the ones that are frustrated, absolutely. Mm. Let's talk Gen Z. I have a theory, which is that I think 
So you've been quoted as saying that you know, Gen Z are a very entrepreneurial bunch. You know, they have, they're full of ideas and they're youthful and they're go-getters and you know, they see thing online, things online and they're inspired and they want to do something about it. I think one of the reasons that millennials too and Gen Zers are entrepreneurial is that they get these sort of little glimpses inside capitalism and inside business when they graduate or do work experience or socialise and network and connect with other people. And they, they see how kind of old school and brutal some of it is. They, they see on the news, you know, these things happening in companies like Sports Direct. They think, that's not right, man. And, and they want to do their own version of it. They want to do their own version of capitalism that not only is more ethical, but actually has a social purpose and, and has a conscience behind it. And I wondered whether I was thinking about that in, in the right in the right order. I guess it's a bit of a chicken and egg thing, you know, what came first. But it's, it seems to me that, that there's so much more of a conscience in the way that young people think about things like business now. That, and interestingly, you know, the idea of a profit hasn't disappeared. People are perfectly comfortable making a profit. But it's, it's how you do it and why you do it that seems to matter. Yeah, I think it's such a good question because I think, firstly, the... The crash has had a huge cultural impact. Obviously, mm. it's had an economic impact, but it's had a huge impact on how um, people see business, and primarily big business, and obviously, specifically, the financial services industry. Um, and let, let's look at the ripples of that. I think millennials are, I mean, talk about Gen X being frustrated. Millennials are a frustrated um, collective because they are instinct capitalists for whom capitalism is not working or mm. has not worked whether that's buying a house yeah. or any other kind of form of asset um, or investment um, opportunity and they therefore saw and see in the kind of narrative of the crash um, a, di a distinct lack of responsibility accountability transparency um, an ethical, moral underpinning. Mm. Now, actually, millennials are still kind of signed up to the baby boomer dream, mm. which is, yeah, you must own a house. Yeah, and they've got are. parents that go, you must own a house. Yeah. Get on the housing ladder. Yeah, when are you saving for your deposit? And that's partly because they remember the good times. Yeah. So they remember the longest consumer boom in history in a way that Generation Z are, do not. They were the generation whose parents said no because they couldn't yeah. afford it. They are the true recession generation. Yeah. Yes, millennials entered the employment market when the crash happened and are angry. But they remember Tony Blair. But they remember Tony Blair. So, you know, the, the average Gen Zer cannot remember 9-11, cannot mm. remember Tony Blair, cannot remember a time when there wasn't or hadn't been a black president in the United States, cannot remember a time when MySpace was a thing. <laughs> they cannot, you know, this is the reality, that's their reality. Yeah. And therefore, they're actually, the recession has made them more resourceful, it's made them more realistic, okay. it's made them more skeptical, it's also mm. made them more savvy and entrepreneurial. Mm. So, a large proportion of Gen Zers make their own pocket money, and they're not doing traditional things such as you know, working in bars or doing newspaper rounds like previous generations did. They're engaging in the marketplace online through mm. their phone. So Depop, for example, which has nine million 
um, users, predominantly most of them are under 25, Gen Zers. It's a secondhand clothing online platform, a cross between Instagram and eBay. Yeah. And what it is doing is whether you're buying or selling clothes, it's teaching you the logistics of the marketplace. But it's yeah. also within a safe, verifying, trans, um, verifiable and transparent community which people trust. Mm. And so you, you understand the ethics of that um, and you believe that it's, um, it's to do with profit, but it's also about peer-to-peer, community-based mm. um, buying and selling. Yeah. And it's, you know, you look on you look on Depop or even eBay. You know, some of these people that are selling secondhand clothes, you know, seventeen years old, and some of the f- the items look like fashion shoots in vogue. I mean, they're ex- yeah. they're learning about marketing in the process. They're learning yeah. about accountancy. They're learning about um, markup prices. I mean, brilliant training in the marketplace. I would say the way they engage in the market online through their phones is had more impact than reading the news, reading about the crash, reading about big sports direct, biz business, big business. Because their day-to-day transactions have credibility, have validity, have um, integrity. Mm. And they're doing that on a scale that no other generation has done before them. So that's the first thing. I think they're also an incredibly serious generation. And we read last week, for example, that um, alcohol consumption amongst this generation is, is, is at an all-time historic low. Yeah. Drugs and as well. so Drugs, sex as well. Yeah. Teenage pregnancy is at its lowest rate now since records began. And that's not because of um, sex education in schools. Why are they having less sex? Why are they not smoking? Why are they drinking less? Why are they not indulging in the traditional deviant activities that most young people have done really since youth was invented in the 1950s? Well, when I was at university, I, I used to indulge in alcohol and have fun and do things that perhaps you know constituted deviant behavior. But I did it safe in the knowledge that there was not 200 or 300 surveillance video devices <laughs> in the bar in which I was getting drunk at. Yeah, sure. So fear of being shamed online mm. is leading them to basically behave in a more sensible way. It's nothing to do with sex education, drug education or better knowledge. It's to do with the fact that they know that their digital footprint yeah, has a potential to shame them. Yeah, ruin their lives. Ruin their lives. I was talking to, um, I was doing a focus group for a business that wanted to um, think about its recruitment strategy for Gen Z. And this guy was was 21 and he said, you know, I realise my digital footprint is my CV. I know that companies I um, apply for jobs in Mm. will be looking back at my social media accounts and therefore I never post a picture of me on social media unless I'm in a suit. And I was like, oh my God, really? Wow. How, how um, curated yeah. is your profile? And actually you can see it. So whereas you know, the fastest demographic on, um, growing de- demographic on social media are baby boomers, right? Because they're uploading freely, unedited, unairbrushed photos of their grandkids, maybe 20 or 30 at a time, really badly <laughs> taken photos. They don't care, it's just share, 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 share. An 18-year-old will upload one beautifully curated, beautifully crafted, perhaps having taken a 
100 photos beforehand, they would upload one. Because they've had, by and large, social media in their lives since they were 13. Yeah. The average Gen Z has had their mobile phone, uh, smartphone since they were 13 and on social media accounts. And so therefore they've been curating themselves as a brand mm. since, that, since they're tweens. And that's meant that they are incredibly, um, again, entrepreneurial savvy and all those good things, but also suffer from intense social anxiety mm. and poor mental health. Yeah. And that's what I believe lies behind the huge rise in mental health. But when you're thinking about how to appeal to them and when you're thinking about how to employ them, you've got to speak their language mm. and also think about the way in which they are engaging with the world. One of the problems fundamentally, and I see this in a lot of companies, they, um, when you have a smartphone, basically you have a load of apps there that r are validating your life choices, your lifestyle, your views and habits and behaviours back yeah. at you all the time. Yeah, echo chamber. Exactly. And then you go into a company and you're like, oh my God, why is everyone pale, male and stale? Yeah. Why doesn't the world, actual world, look like my phone world? Yeah. And that's a real problem for companies and f generations that are going to really push for that whole diversity and inclusion agenda is not going to be some sort of tick boxing boxing exercise. It's got to be real. It's it's going to be actually the make or break as to whether you get the best talent. Mm, okay. Um, and what of feminism and specifically in the workplace? I last week I went to a recording of the Guilty Feminist, and it was fascinating. I learnt a lot, and we were hearing all about how, you know, w women can't just be given power incrementally. They need to take power. Um, so how can millennial males like me, for instance, support kind of millennial and Gen Z females in this endeavour, um, in the workplace specifically? Because as I think you're saying, you know, that change, it's got to be genuine, it's got to be real. And I think one thing that has distinguished millennials, but perhaps more so Gen Zers, is that they can smell bullshit. If you're being disingenuous with a Gen Zer, they can they can tell straight away, and and that belies all of the kind of traditional old school sales methodologies where perhaps you might meet your client in an office and and be very charming and and um, and forthright about how brilliant you thought your product was. But nowadays, if you're doing that to a Gen Zer, and they can they can smell something. Well, they are the ad, no deal. ad blocker generation, both you know, literally and figuratively, in mm. that they they can sniff the, yeah, as you say, the BS is from f a fair distance. And you're seeing it now, brand shaming mm. on social media, calling out companies for their perhaps in dodgy internal practices or investment practices or anything like that. Their, their ECG record is, 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 is a, a phenomenon that's not going to go away. Um, and I think with, on the particular point of women, I think it's very interesting. I've just come from a meeting with an investment firm that the, he the head of um, the firm actually said to me, I really believe in women. I really believe I, they have the potential to be just as good as men. And, um, you know, I have daughters. Of course, I believe in women. Yeah. And I, I sort of said, well, do you know what, that's not good enough. Because what you're essentially articulating is a paternalistic view yes. of the, the issue. 
So you're saying, I believe in women. Yes, yes, yes. Let me give you the power, women, yeah. to, to do what you want with it. Yes. Um, I have daughters. I know exactly. I mean, he even put it in paternalistic terms. And I said, right, okay, actually, why don't you let the women actually decide what they want from yeah. your company? Because the thing that I see a lot of is in the financial services industry and, and other sectors, um, white men in power articulating their progressive credentials. Mm. So, sort, of, sort of virtue signal. Yes, right. yes, yes. And that's great. And that's to be lauded, of course. But I think we're going beyond that now. Because in crude economic terms, women are the investment for the future. Mm. And let me put that in a global context. Undergraduates across the world, women now outnumber men. In terms of doctoral degrees in the US, women have outnumbered men for the last eight years. Mm. So they're, they're better educated. And when they become better educated, women have fewer children. Mm. So global fertility rates have decreased by half since 1960. Now that has huge impact because essentially when women are in control of their bodies, are entering the professions, are better educated, religion is less of a cultural determinant and a restriction than ever before, even in the Middle East. And so actually women are having, will have power and money. Mm. And so it's completely um, uh, short-sighted to not understand, it's, it's short-sighted to not understand the way in which women are gonna have mm. more and more power. Mm. That's nothing to do with Me Too. That's nothing to do with feminism. It's happening. It's crude economics and demographics. Yeah, it's right? happening, right. And actually the great untapped resource in Asia, for example, is not the rural poor, but is women. Mm. And as soon as you get the mass entry, and it's already happening in Japan because they've got terrible um, demographic crisis in Japan, but across places like China, Indonesia, um, particularly places that don't have large waves of immigration, women are entering the workplace at a, a, a rapid rate. Mm. And they're just going to have more money. And actually the business opportunities are in female firms, female technology, female services, female organisations, female entrepreneurs, because they have a more understanding of what those new female middle class consumers will want. So in crude economic terms, it makes sense to actually listen and give agency to women in your company. Um, you know, lots of studies have been done as to the way in which diversity on your boards, gender diversity actually means, affects your, ben your bottom line mm. for the good. Yeah. Um, so the economic argument for the future being female is absolutely there. I think on another level, I think um, how can a millennial male or even a baby boomer male, help women have agency and, and greater power. Unpaternalistically. Unpaternalistically, right. So, it's, um, I, 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 I am frightened when I hear of the development of apps, for example, that listen in on meetings and analyze the language that men are using towards their female colleagues. Mm. 
but I can understand the motivation of trying to provide it. There are now apps in which listen to meetings and highlight, create a script and highlight examples of mansplaining, mm. highlight examples of men butting in, yeah. highlight examples of men shutting women out, highlight silences from the female colleagues. So people have a breakdown, even in crude data form, of the way in which women's voices are not being heard in the company. Now, I wouldn't have thought we'd needed to get to that extent, that, that, that extreme practice. But having an awareness, yeah. and I'm not thinking in terms of, you know, check your privilege or anything like that, but just having an awareness of your language and having an awareness of your behavior and having an awareness of what kinds of behavior you're encouraging is I think part of the answer as well. I mean, for example, again, going back to my meeting earlier on this morning with the investment manager, he said to me, you know, millennials aren't buying um, art anymore, but they are buying wine. And it's an example of how millennials are, wine as in good wine, not, you know, Prosecco, um, <laughs> are buying very good wine. Mm. Um, and I said, well, it's about experience over assets, right? They're an experience buying um, demographic rather than asset buying demographic. And he said, even the women are buying wine. And I said, what do you, why are you surprised by that? Mm. What? Yes, women drink wine. Yes. Oh. And immediately there, just in that saying, even the women are buying wine, is a kind of, the subtext of that is, I don't really know the demographic in my organization or in, in society that I'm, at, I'm supposedly supporting. Yeah. And encouraging, and I'm a father, you know, of daughters. Yes. And even women drink wine. And even women drink wine. It's not good enough. Yeah. Wow. That's quite a case study, isn't it? I think, as regards meetings, I mean, we, we all, we all have moments. I, I always try to avoid using this phrase in discussions like this. But speaking as a man, <laughs> we all have moments where it's like, oh, I really shouldn't have used, you know. And it's not to say it'd be explicitly inappropriate at all, but like really shouldn't have used sort of language that includes metaphors that are perhaps more overtly masculine than you might realise when you first mentioned them. Or, or I should really have stopped my male colleague from yammering on when it was very obvious that my female colleague, who's the only one around the table, surprise, right. surprise, mm. could have been contributing. Mm. And it's practical things like that that... Um, you know, that, that really concern me. Um, as regards the apps, it's kind of like, I think we've, we've got to have those things, I think. Because I think, as we've seen with Me Too, there's been so much resistance to the idea of change. You know, that every, for every accusation of, of something inappropriate, there's, there's a guy saying, well, that's not me, that's not my responsibility, that's not who I am. Yeah, but I, yeah. But, but it's I... about kind of collective responsibility. And, and I think if we really cared about this stuff, then we would, you know, we would push through this. We would embrace the apps. We'd embrace the data. We'd embrace behavioural change as much as we could. No, because it's actually that 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 app is fascist in its. Um, okay. Do you think? Yes. Okay. Yes. And actually, one thing that's interesting, quite I find reassuring about Gen Z, is they are incredibly um, protective of their privacy, mm. and they're is not the app going to allow. 
probably. <laughs> the, um, they're not going to allow, in the way that millennials have quite freely, for their data to be mm. used either in the home, the workplace, or the consumer space. Mm. This is the generation, for example, who love Snapchat because it disappears, sure. who are don't need to be told that you know they are the product if the product's free because they know that already, and that's why they control the amount of information and what information they give much more much more sophisticated understanding of their data privacy. But two, three more things that I just want to brief, very briefly say is, first of all, Gen Z are the, the generation that are challenging whether gender exists as a category. And so you're okay. going to have really interesting discussions within companies very soon about whether actually gen, uh, female-only networks are an appropriate vehicle for um, uh, fostering equality within the workplace. Sure. Secondly, automation is going to affect men's jobs more than women's. So, and actually in the age of artificial intelligence, emotional intelligence is going to be a premium. Who has greater emotional intelligence? Women. I think actually women are going to thrive in the age of automation, men less so. And thirdly, I think there is a point, a tipping point at which men will find it very difficult to be a man if they're questioning what metaphors to use, what language to use, constantly checking mm. their male privilege. I think you'll restrict the development of masculinity in the process. That's a very interesting point because I think that that's a huge factor in what's driven a very substantial male mental health crisis. Because I think mm -hmm. men, as a, men as a group of people, they're experiencing an identity mm -hmm. problem. They don't know who to be. And this may all sound a bit culturally and waffly, but these discussions are beginning to take place in companies right now. Mm -hmm. And that's not just in respect to your recruitment strategy or how you think you can appeal to Gen Z or but also your client base and your consumer base, because these are the kinds of conversations that are happening in families. And if they're happening in families, then you guys need to know about this because it will influence what people spend their money on, or what people, how people spend their time, how people think about the future. Mm. Well, great. Um, I think that's just about all that we've got time for today. Uh, I'm so pleased, Eliza, that you could join us. Um, it's been great having you here. If you're interested in her work and want to find out more, please do check out her, web her website. It's www.elizaphilby.com. Um, we're going to go and make a short film now for a CityWire event all about po uh, the topics we've been covering. But I will just add finally that if you like what you heard today from our podcast, please subscribe online and please, please, please leave us a nice review. So until next time, thanks and goodbye. Thank <laughs> you.